Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Anxious about the new school year and the uncertain challenges that may pop up as a result of working from home, virtual learning, and social distancing? The Fall 2020 ADHD Essentials Online Parent Coaching Groups can help. You'll work with me and your fellow group members via online video chat to talk about all of the parenting challenges brought about by ADHD and COVID-19 and develop effective ways to manage them. These groups are COVID tested having already run twice during the pandemic and they run for eight weeks during which you'll learn the skills you need to better parent your unique child. You'll learn about parenting as leadership, effective systems and structures, fostering connection within your family and without, ways to improve communication, how to manage the anxiety in your home, my wall of awful model, effective self-care practices, and how to ask better questions so you get better answers. In other words, how to get an answer other than good, fine, and nothing when you ask your kid about how their day went. But perhaps the most powerful part of these groups are the connections you'll make with other parents facing similar struggles. One session is at noon Eastern, and another session is at 5 p.m. Eastern. They begin on Monday, September 21st. But registration closes this coming week on Friday, September 18th. So go to ADHDessentials.com slash parentgroups or email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com to register for a free information call today. Check the show notes for those links. And speaking of next week, Gene Harville's online summit, Unleash Your Child's Genius, starts on Monday, and I'm a part of it. The summit is filled with research-based, proven practices for parents to help their kids gain control over their emotions, anxiety, academic, and communication skills. Check out the link in the show notes for more details. My workshop is on perfectionism. I'm sure you'll find it valuable. And of course, check out our partner podcasts, ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers and Hacking Your ADHD with Will Kerb. In ADHD Rewired, Eric Tivers shares amazing interviews with ADHD experts and ADHD adults. And in Hacking Your ADHD, Will Curb shares practical, actionable tips to help us better manage the disorder. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Elaine Taylor-Klaus. Elaine is a certified co-active coach, public speaker, educator, and co-founder of both Sanity School and Impact ADHD. She's also the author of the new book, The Essential Guide to Raising Complex Kids. In today's episode, Elaine and I talk about how parents of complex kids are handling the pandemic, the importance of verbalizing the unspoken, and of course, her new book. We discuss the value of the book's intentional, user-friendly design, the six areas of challenge parents face in raising their complex kids, the power of using a coach approach with our children, 
and how to avoid taking things personally. All right, let's get rolling. So I'm Elaine Taylor Klaus, and I am the mom in what I like to call an ADHD plus plus family of, well, I used to be family of five. I'm about to be a family of six because my eldest kid's about to get married and is bringing another delightfully complex young adult into our family. I am the co-founder of Impact ADHD, which is now becoming Impact Parents. So we are now sort of expanding to, to reflect the parents we've been serving all these years, parents of kids with ADHD, and a whole range of complex issues, parents of kids with, with anxiety, learning disabilities, depression, autism, Tourette's, like, you know, if you've got a, I, I always say if you've got a complex kid, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I am a coach and a parent educator, and I am all about making life easier for parents, and I feel incredibly blessed to get to do that every day. And before we go any deeper into the interview, I just want to thank you for coming on because you've been, you've been doing the ADHD parenting thing for longer than I have. And I try to do right by the, the folks who have come before me. And so I like to call that out when, when, I'm, when I'm interviewing an ADHD coach, ADHD expert that has come before me and helped pave that road. I, I'd just like to take a moment to thank them. So I want to I wanna do that now. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I, I, I totally honor what you're saying. And I feel that way about several of our colleagues. So it's kind of nice to be at that place myself. Thank you. Because you are, right? Like Impact ADHD has been around for... Almost a decade. That was what I was going to guess. And that's a big accomplishment because there's, there's plenty of ADHD coaches, companies, people who have come and gone in those 10 years. And Impact ADHD isn't one of them. You're one of the ones that stuck around and stayed and is now expanding and becoming Impact Parents and Impact Anxiety and Impact Complex Kids, yep. as well as Impact ADHD, which will stay there too um, in sort of different blog silos and underneath the umbrella of Impact Parents. And that's, that's awesome. Thank you. It's pretty exciting. Given that you've got this umbrella, before we go into the book, what's been your experience of COVID so far? What are you seeing from your clients, from your own kids and family? What's that look like? You know, it's, it's interesting, Brendan. I'm, a, I'm one of these people that sees patterns and I see trends, right? And so I, I've been really, while I've been deeply enmeshed in COVID, because as you well know, being a parenting coach in a global pandemic is kind of a busy experience. <laughs> It's been fun. It's, I'm not going to lie. It's been wild. Yeah. Like I know a lot of people are really suffering and, and it's really been great for those of us who are serving because it gives us like a real capacity to do our work in the world and to really make a difference. And the trends I've seen have been interesting. And in the, in the early pandemic, I saw a lot of families of younger kids really struggling, right? Parents of kids five to eight were really having a hard time mostly because their kids were regressing, right? So the kids mm -hmm. had gone away to school, come home. Now they're not sure where's home, where's school. And there was a lot of regressing behaviors and parents were trying to get a handle on it. By the summer, the parents were getting a handle on the younger kids. The middle-aged elementary school kids, you know, like 8 to 11 or 12, were really, have really been doing pretty fine throughout all of this, generally speaking. There are exceptions, I'm sure, to those of you listening. But generally speaking, they, they've been doing okay. And then by August, I was getting all these calls of parents of, you know, five to, 15 to 18-year-olds. And so the 15 and 16-year-old kids in particular were starting to really have a hard time. And what I realized was happening, the pattern that I was seeing is that it was all about control issues. Mm -hmm. So five months into being in quarantine together, the teenagers were finally like, enough, 
I've had it. Get off my back. While at the same time, the parents are feeling more responsible, more, you know, like the, the schools are giving the pressure that they're supposed to be more in control. I had one client in Tennessee whose school actually made the parents sign some agreement about their role in the education, this is the public school in, in Memphis. And, and so the parents are feeling more responsible with these teenagers who have this amazing opportunity for more independence if the parents could just allow it. And so there's been a huge amount of control stuff going on in the last couple of months. Even the lack of clarity that schools have been going, like as the sort of waves of school openings and then closures and that kind of stuff has been going on, the people I've been working with, they haven't known what's going on. They don't know, is, is my school going to be virtual? Is it going to be in person? Is it going to be hybrid? How long is it going to last? And that trickles down to the kids too. But, but here's the thing though. So my theory is this. My theory is those of us who are parenting complex kids, we actually have some experience in not knowing what's going to happen and dancing with whatever comes up and dancing with surprises and pivoting mid-step. Actually, we've been practicing that for years with complex kids. That's what it is to parent a complex kid, is to be able to dance with, to you know, swing at whatever's coming, to pivot however you want to, whatever metaphor you want to use. That's what it takes to parent a complex kid is to have a kind of bring it on, I've got this attitude. And so in some ways, the parents of complex kids may be doing better right now than the neurotypical parents because they're used to things going smoothly and knowing what to expect. And we already know that you can't really expect things to go the way you think they will. I've been saying the exact same thing to my clients in the coaching groups and the one-on-ones that I have. One of the things that I find the parents I work with are struggling with is not knowing. A lot of them are like, I don't care what it is. Just tell me what it is so that I can then pivot. But having to wait for three months to find out what your pivot is, that seems to be the thing that's wearing on the majority of the parents that I'm working with. I agree. And you know, what I always tell my kids is that you can't make a decision until you have the information you need to make the decision. And where we create anxiety and stress for ourselves is trying to make decisions before we have full information. And yeah, waiting is hard, especially when we have complex issues ourselves or, you know, we don't have the patience. We want to know. What if we allowed ourselves to, to know that when we have the information, we'll make the best decision possible at that time? And until then, let's enjoy being where we are because we can't do anything about that. We don't have enough information yet. And I just want to point out to the audience how thoroughly you practice what you just preached. Yeah. Because, ladies and gentlemen, Prior to recording, Elaine dropped a piece of paper on the ground and she said, that's just where that piece of paper is supposed to be. And I said to her, if you want to pick that up and put it somewhere, go ahead. We're not, we don't have to record this second. And she was like, no, it's fine. That's where it needs to be. And that sort of balanced and at peace with it is what it is. Things are where they are. You're practicing that thoroughly. You're not just saying that right now because I watched you do that five minutes ago. Thank you. I appreciate that acknowledgement very much. I do practice it. Um, I, I can't say I started this way. I started off as a really neurotic Jewish mother. And, um, and coaching guided me. Yoga and then coaching. I think the combination of the two, because I used to be a yoga teacher, um, guided me into a really a new way of being in the world um, mm -hmm. that is much more about acceptance and allowing, not having to control absolutely everything. My favorite example of what you just pointed to, and it's kind of a funny story, is this summer, you know, my kids were home and my, I have a teenage, older teenage son, he's a college kid. 
And so he was home for the summer, and as you can imagine, with nothing to do, sleeping very late every day. And we had negotiated a 12 o'clock you know, limit to sleeping in every day. So I'm on the phone with a colleague, and he walks into my office at about 11 to say he's off to go do something. And I, I'm not even thinking about it. I'm like, I am so, look at you. I'm so impressed. You're up. It's 11 o'clock. You're out the door. Way to go, man. And I'm completely authentic and genuine. And, and I come back to the, to the Zoom and my colleague goes, I do not think I could have possibly mustered that much authenticity <laughs> to say what you just said. Because he had a 13-year-old son who was probably sleeping in all summer and making him crazy. I choose to, I have learned to choose to sort of be much more accepting to what happens in the world that, that is not in my control and, I'll, and to respond to it instead of trying to, to control it. So I have a question. Yeah. Because my kids, if I dropped something like that on them, 50-50 chance they take it as genuine, 50-50 chance they take it as disingenuous, yeah. like sarcasm or guilt, which is never how I mean it because I do the same kind of stuff. But they're, they bring that shame with them on their own, right? Like they just kind of grab it and it doesn't matter what my intention is or what your intention is. Sometimes they just, they feel bad that they slept till 11 and they put that on you, even though you're genuinely saying like, no, it's great. Like, awesome. You're awake. Tally-ho. What would you do with that? How would, how do you navigate that in your own kids or advise your clients? What does that look like? So I guess, you know, part of it depends on how old your kids are. And part of it depends on how long you've been practicing this coach approach, which is what we teach, which is what my book's about. Um, I've been doing this a long time. This particular kid was six years old when I started this work. He's now 19. Mm -hmm. So he knows that I'm authentic and genuine. And we use playful banter and we have always used it as a, as a tool for ADHD management. My greatest success was when he finally got to his teenage years and he was able to start laughing at himself. And, you know, and not taking it personally and not being as defensive. And it takes a while to help them get there. But what I've learned in my kids is their emotional intelligence is, is extraordinary, well, well above most of their peers, because they've been raised in this environment where there have been authentic conversations and where if they did react and say something, you know, I could respond without putting them on the defensive. Earlier this summer, my 23-year-old who's here this summer studying for the MCATs. And so that's been some stress. And so I was in the kitchen and I made some comment about, are you getting up? Are you moving something? And she, she comes out, she says, I'm getting up, but I just want you to know it's not because you told me to get up. It's because I was planning to get up and I wanted to do it anyway. But when you said that, I almost wanted to not come out. And then I realized I wanted to come out for me. And so I'm out, right? Or something <laughs> like that. It was hysterical. And we both laughed. But it's because we're able to verbalize the unspoken. We're able yep. to design with each other without taking it personally or stepping into judgment. And that takes practice, as you say. It's not something that just, you don't just flip a switch. You got you to gotta work on relationships. They're kind of intense, you know. And pointing out the age stuff is, is great, right? Because I've been doing that since my kids were born. Like, it's just how I'm wired and how I work. Um, and I learned a lot of lessons that got me there, too. Yeah. But now they're like, they're 11. And that's just that developmental age where everything is about you. Like they're into that kind of phase of life of young adolescence. So that developmental stage matters, right? Because it worked when they were eight. That stuff was fine when they were eight. And now like, it's mostly 11. Like I don't think it happened as much when they were 10. Maybe late 10, 10, 11. And it's going to keep going for a few more years. I was going to say, you got a few more years and then they'll come back out yeah. of it, right? Right. Because you'll stay steady and you won't take it personally. Yeah. 
and as used to, and because it's about you, right? I know you think it's about your kids, but it's really all about you. The change starts with you, with mm -hmm. how you be, how you, it, when you choose to respond instead of reacting to them, that sets the, the rest of the dynamic at play. That's interesting because it's, because I think I have the same view, but I say it the opposite way. <laughs> how do you say it? I let, and I say this big picture in general, not just my kids, but broadly speaking, my thought process when I need it is what if you're not the main character, Ooh. right? Cause we, we travel through our lives assuming we're the main character and that can cause some problems, but I try to go through my life assuming I'm everyone else's supporting cast and they're the main character. I love it. Yeah, it's amazing how useful that is. It makes a lot of stuff easier. So here's here's my language for it, which is not nearly as glamorous <laughs> as yours. Um, I, in some environments, I might not use a five-letter word. I might use a four-letter word for this. But I will say respectfully here, other people's stuff is their stuff, mm -hmm. right? They've got their stuff. It's not my stuff. If I choose to make it my stuff, now it's my problem. But as long as I let people have their stuff and I don't make it be about me, then we can keep working together and figuring things out. But as soon as I make it about me, I'm no longer being the supportive, coachy, parenty, whatever you want to call it, person that they, the adult they need me to be. You're right. This is true for, it's not just in parenting because the biggest, the biggest upsets that happen, I think, in adult relationships of all kinds is that we take stuff personally that's not our stuff. The turning point for when I came to that perspective, it didn't quite get me there, but it like fast forward to me way down the road was when my kids were born. Some friends of ours announced it on social media for us. My guys are 11, so social media was new. This is like live right. journal stuff. It's not even Facebook. And now we have norms and social niceties and we know what to do but back then it hadn't happened yet and they thought they were being helpful but for us it was like oh you're not even related like it's not you can't and i in my head i was like if you can't get first possessives to do it don't make the announcement so you can say like my niece was born but you can't right. say my friend's kids was born right <laughs> like if it, if there's two possessives happening it's not your news and it's not your stuff yeah let me bring the interview back on track. Okay. I want to talk about the essential guide to raising complex kids. And I first want to just commend you on using the word essential because <laughs> um, <laughs> great minds. Yeah, exactly. This is a book that's bigger than ADHD, right? We're looking at complex kids. So ADHD, anxiety, oppositional defiance disorder, sort of that basket, but then also other things like juvenile diabetes, celiac disease, food allergies, regular allergies, I assume. It's not purely uh, like a neurological book. It's, it's about your kid is complicated for whatever reason that may be. And how do we navigate that more effectively? I would say it's about behavior management. So if you have any chronic condition that requires management, that a kid's going to have to learn to become their own medical manager for it, whether it's a mental health condition, neurological, metabolic, this approach is about navigating that ability to transfer ownership and empower your kids to take ownership of themselves and to become their own medical managers. I used to be an English teacher. So I'm like a huge dork about text structures and stuff. And I, when I talk about books, I like to pull that stuff out. For one reason, nobody ever does. Like that's not a thing that comes up with interviews. But when the text structure is good, I'd like to say, this is really good and call it out. 
because the audience listening to this 50 50 shot they have adhd probably more than that and it's critical for that audience to have useful text structures and to have a good frame to build on so what do you mean by useful text structures because that's kind of a, a lingo term i'm going to walk us through it so one thing is like headings and subheadings and that kind of stuff when you have like the text off in a blue box as opposed to a white box, like the page is white and then there's like a blue box with other text in it, that stuff is happening here. There's images to help us understand and follow along with what you're saying. That's what I mean by text structures. This is not a book that's just black and white boxes of text on a page forever. There's sections where there's a good amount of black and white text in a page like you'd expect from a book. But just when it starts to get tedious like any book does and i don't mean the book is tedious i just mean process of reading yeah the process of reading is tedious exactly yeah just when that starts to come something happens there's an image there's bolded words there's a, a new subheading it's great and i'm a fan <laughs> so, thank you yeah and and that that is important for reading for adhd people yeah and you go one step forward beyond that and in the very beginning of the book on page 11, as, <laughs> at least according to the early version I got, right. you have an entire section that says, do I have to read the whole book? <laughs> Which like brought a song into my heart <laughs> because I hate the beginning of books about ADHD and parenting because I often am not reading things that I don't already know. Yeah. Because that's the nature of the beginning of those books, right? I'm like, I, okay, I want to get the more detailed stuff that comes later but I don't want to miss that because I didn't read the beginning. I don't want to not understand something. And, and then I come across page 11 and it's like, do I have to read the whole book? And you basically say, no, no, here's like five <laughs> ways you can read this book. <laughs> and that's awesome because we need that permission, right? As parents who are stressed and anxious, like the, the neurotic Jewish mom, not that I married one. She's not neurotic, but she is Jewish. Um, and I'm, I'm the neurotic Catholic dad. Like we just bring the Jewish and Catholic neuroses together. We all know guilt really well. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but having that, that permission from the jump to, to play a little bit, right? Because you say, start from the beginning and find the Im immense value in it. Do that, right? Or start with a chapter that appeals to you and seems like a quick fix. So look for an easy win. Or start with quotes and images and subheadings, those text structures I was just talking about. Or just read the strategy section in each chapter, which is, again, that's text structure stuff. Like at, at the end, we get the like, this is what's up, here's what to do. That's sort of, and that summation of the chapters. And then, or just read the whole thing. Like just tally-ho, do the whole thing. I love that. In my head, that's the number one selling point for this book. Because if I can't get to the other stuff inside of it, it doesn't matter how good it is. So the fact that you're making this door easy to get through is important. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that acknowledgement because I, um, so I, I worked with a publisher to publish this book and I, um, it was interesting how I have a value around usability. Like, I know who my audience is. I know as years, half my audience is going to have complex issues themselves. Maybe it's ADHD. Maybe it's learning disabilities. Maybe it's dyslexia. I have my own learning disabilities. So, and I wasn't diagnosed with learning disabilities and ADHD until I was in my forties. So, um, so it, 
for it has to pass my test. I have to be visually able to process it in order to read something. Mm -hmm. And so I really worked very hard to make this book super, super user friendly. You know, several people have asked me what was my process for writing. And I wrote this book literally in my free time, of which there was not that much. And the way that I was able to do it, it was by highly structuring the book. You don't have these long flowing chapters. Every chapter, you know exactly what to expect after the introduction. Every chapter's got an introductory story. It's got a problem. It's got a reframe of the problem. It's got a strategy. It's got a, what do you say yes to? What do you say no to? How do you use that strategy? And then it ends with a section on sort of self-talk, self-care, followed at the very end with some coach yourself questions. Every single chapter is going to have the same structure. I wanted there to be a work page at the end of every chapter. I lost on that game. But I, I got it in color, and they wanted it in black and white, and I really pushed. Because even though it's not a lot of color, it's enough to break up the eye. A lot of what you're pointing to, I really appreciate because I did it very intentionally. Like it was, it was very much designed to make it usable and small chunks. I, it was like every section you should be able to read while you're sitting at a therapist office waiting for your kid. That's the goal. What you're describing is exactly how every nonfiction book should be written as far as I'm concerned. Agreed. And as a guy working on his own book in his free time, which is why a lot of it is still on my wall and not in my computer. Understood. My vision for that book is very similar to how this book goes because it's you've, you've got to make it easy to access. Yeah. And, and so I, I can't, I know I'm not talking content and I'm not giving you the opportunity to like show what you know, except that I'm totally giving you the opportunity to show what you know, but just a deeper understanding. The design of this book is phenomenal, including you went one step further and talked about how the chapters are broken down into sections and, and the reframes and the, and the summations and all that stuff, which is also amazing. So just huge compliments on the design and, and structure of this book. Thank you. And, and one more thing I want to point out is that there's a, a, a discussion guide at the end. So the other thing that I did, and I pulled this from years ago, there was a woman named Wendy Mogul who wrote my favorite parenting book called The Blessings of a Skinned Knee. Mm -hmm. And she had one of these in the back of the book. And I thought, how brilliant for parent groups and teacher groups and PTAs and to be able to have the questions to guide you through a reading discussion of the book. And so there's that in the book too. So you can flip to the back of the book and look at those questions to kind of figure out what's salient or how to use it for yourself. And the book is divided into three sections on top of all of that other stuff yeah. that we've been talking about, where part one is the parent role in handling things. And then part two is your impact model and like practical steps on how to do stuff. And then Part three is just sort of an initiation guide. It's like how to take action and do the thing that we're learning about as we read the book. Exactly. Yeah. It sets the stage. Here's the model. Here's how you wrap it up and put it all into practice. With all of that said, let's talk about what's in the book. Awesome. <laughs> you can do that. Instead of just me being a huge book dork and being like, this Well, I was going to say, I, from one book geek to another, I really, really appreciate it more than you know. So thank you. My mother-in-law will be very impressed, actually. So the first piece that struck me, it, it comes early on and it's your, um, your sort of six areas of challenge mm -hmm. that parents encounter, kids encounter. And it's the emotions and schoolwork or, or work, organization, relationships, logistics, and then impact on adults. Can you talk a little bit about what those are and how you came to them and what's going on there? 
Yeah, yeah. Diane and I have been teaching those for a really long time. We figured that out very early in, at in, in the impact um, world universe. Um, we started, so Diane and I both kind of look at patterns and themes. And we were looking at what are the issues our parents were presenting with again and again and again, and they fell into these six categories. And it's not just our community. This is what people deal with. These are the areas of our life that we're trying to manage. We're all trying to manage relationships. We're all trying to manage life in school. We're all trying to manage what I would call troop movements or logistics. It used to be, remember when we used to get out of the door in the morning, you know, <laughs> or get homework done or dinner or whatever. We're all trying to stay organized and figure out what needs to get done. We're all trying to manage our emotions around all of it. Those are common to every human. What's different for parents of complex kids is that one that's, the, we used to call it the impact on the parent. It's now the impact on the adult because it's really broader than just parents. But when someone has a diagnosis or a challenge area, and so even if your kid's not diagnosed, but you know you're struggling with some aspect of life or learning, we have to deal with how we feel about that, about how that impacts us. And we often get caught up in this world of, shoulds have, but they should, they're nine, they should be doing this. They're 12, they should be doing that. Or I should be able to do what all my friends are doing while they're going to piano and ballet classes and I'm taking kid from one therapist to another. We get caught up in this is not the child I expected to have. And that's hard for us. And so I think that we have to acknowledge that that is real. And what I've learned, because now my kids are significantly older, is that as we hit each milestone, or as our kids fail to hit each milestone, as sometimes happens, we have to process that for ourselves as well. We have to figure out whether we're grieving or anticipatory or scared or whatever the, the emotion is, excited. We have to make sure to create the space to think about how we're experiencing it too so that we can process our stuff and get it out of the way so we can put our attention back over there on our kid. My best example for that, and I, I cannot honestly remember, this story is in the book for sure, um, is my eldest child, who is a non-traditional kid, but like really non-traditional, ended up, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, ended up graduating from high school for twice exceptional kids in Los Angeles, California. So you can imagine how complicated that already is in that I live in Atlanta and they were living in LA. That's a whole other conversation, how that happened. But, but it, it happened because they're an actor and they were trying to pursue a career and, and they were 18. It was like they, they were never going to be you know, a stellar academic kid. As smart as they are, that was not their thing. Um, but they had a real gift for acting and we wanted to, to support them in pursuing their, their goal. And so we got them into school, got a family for them to live in, move there. And so we end up going to their high school graduation. So they had been in school with my niece here in Atlanta. And I went to her graduation where my daughter was not. And that was really hard for me to process. So even though I was really happy for my kid, and at the time my kid was on set in Vancouver on a major television show doing what they loved in the world. And really thriving and doing, being really successful. Even then, I had to deal with the fact that I was still disappointed on some level that they weren't graduating from this high school here in Atlanta on the stage of Symphony Hall where I thought they were going to, right? And that's what I mean by the impact on us, that I ended up 
being in this small graduation ceremony in a small school where I knew nobody, right? Because LA, Atlanta. And I felt really at home there because I knew that those other parents there had quirky kids just like mine and on some level could relate to me better than my peers here at home. So I think we all deal with all of these six areas, but that one that I think is really important for us to give a lot of credence to and to really pay attention to is how do we feel about what's happening with our complex kids and how do we deal with that again and again as it comes up? Because even though we can be really happy for them and they're doing great, it doesn't change the fact that it may not be what we expected. And we have to deal with our own issues around our own expectations. That resonates for me in the area of the idea that we, we process everything emotionally and cognitively, and you don't really finish the cognitive part until you get the emotional part processed. And that's what you're talking about, right? Like you couldn't totally recognize, I suppose, my kid is in Vancouver on a major television show and that's amazing. I'm not able to access the pride yet, some of it, but not, not all of it, because I'm going, how come they're not on this stage here where my people that I know are and are seeing my kid on that stage. Which is all about me. Right. Right. It's got nothing to do with, with them. That's all about me. Yeah. And parenting is our experience, right? It's our journey. And so we have to acknowledge what it is about us in this, in this experience in order to really take us out of it and be the best parent we need to be for them when they need us to. And that means processing our stuff. Yeah. We're circling all the way back to where this conversation started. Exactly. Another component of this that I want to that I want to make sure that we touch on, and I don't want to necessarily give the whole book away because, like, buy the book, read the book. It's great, <laughs> as you can probably already tell. But can you walk us through the coach approach just a little so people can get an idea of what that is and a little bit of a taste for it? So here's my story. Stepping back, when I became a coach, I became a better parent. It wasn't rocket science. I met Diane Dempster. She had a parallel experience, and we went. Oh, maybe we could teach this to parents. And so everything we do, all of our training programs, all of our coaching programs, they all have a component to them that's about training in fundamental coaching skills. So we're not training parents to become coaches. We're not coach trainers, but we're training them to take a coach approach to their parenting because these skills are really good fundamental communication skills and they really work to empower ourselves and to empower our kids. So the coach approach is a model that comes out of the classic world of professional coaching and, and to some extent from change management in the workplace. And it's a really simplified version to make it accessible. Again, everything we do, it, it's not like we've created all this stuff. We've, we've organized it really, really well and made it easy to use. And so the model starts with what we call taking aim. Now, if you were to go talk to a coach and have a coaching conversation, the first thing the coach would say is, what do you want coaching on today? Or what, what change do you want to see? You know, some question that asks you to start thinking about what do you want? And so we talk about it in terms of taking aim as step one, because oftentimes parents, and I know that you know this experience, Brendan, will come to us with 30 things they want to see changed. Yep. And our job as coaches is to help the parent figure out where do you want to start? What's your priority? What's the most important thing? Because you can't tackle it all. If you try to tackle all, you'll make yourself crazy and you'll make your kids crazy. But if you take aim on one thing at a time, we call it, you know, take the marathon view. Know that you're in this for the long haul. 
you see some success, success builds on success, and then you can get some buy-in to continue the process of change. And I know a lot of parents of teenagers are thinking, yeah, but it's too late, or I only have two years. It doesn't matter at what point, this is how change happens. Tiny habits is what makes change, and it start by taking aim on one thing at a time. And then the second stage or step in the, in the model is what is, is collecting information, gathering data, whatever you want to call it. I call it getting curious. Um, so first you take aim and then you, you spend a little time spelunking, getting curious, uh, observing, noticing what's happening around the dynamic before you start coming up with a, so a solution for it. Part of what happens in parenting, and I think in the ADHD coaching world a little too often, is that we start with solutions. We jump into to try to fix something with a solution instead of pulling back and really understanding the problem before we try to solve it. So that's really what step two is about, is getting curious. And then step three is planning. And, and in that, we kind of break that down into a few different areas. So we, we understand that something's going on in the brain. So understanding what does it take to activate the brain. And if you've got a metabolic issue, then it's, it's about that. If it's a neurologic issue, it's about that. But understanding the component that that has in problem solving is really essential. And then we look at positivity because any good parenting paradigm includes positivity. Um, we talk a lot about shifting expectations, which I think is one of, the, one of the things that differentiates what you and I do, Brendan, from typical parenting people right, out there in the world. Generally speaking, when you have a complex kid, you've probably already encountered that you've tried to read some parenting guru that everybody told you to read and it wasn't working. And usually when it's not working, it's because the expectations are based on a kid's age instead of on their development. And so we talk a lot about shifting our expectations to meet our kids where they are developmentally, not where they are chronologically. And that's a really important component for complex kids. Yeah, that's critical. And then the last one is, we call it systems and structures, but it's, we, we want to get you to the systems and structures, but you don't want to start there. You want to land there through this process of discovery so that when you're creating a system or a structure, you're doing it collaboratively with your kid, with buy-in, with ownership, so that you're going to create a structure that's more likely to, to last, or that you can, as we say, rinse and repeat, so that you can sort of look at what works, what doesn't work, tweak it, and try it again. But we're looking at a bigger process of collaborative problem solving. And what we want to do is guide parents through this process and teach them how to use it again and again and again, instead of just giving them a fix. Because I can give you a fix and it might work and it might not, but that's not going to teach you how to, how to handle it in the long haul. The, the, and I'll close here with this question. My, the metaphor I like to use is it's not just that we, don't want, we want to teach you to fish, right? I want us to help our kids learn how to plan an entire fishing trip. And so to do that, you've got to know more than just put the bait on the hook and the, put it in the water. Like you've got to be able to look at the whole big picture and, and understand how to create all the different steps that it takes to do it. And that's, that's the big picture goal here. Yeah. Cause you want to make sure you're not fishing in a swimming pool. Exactly. Unless you're like fishing for something fun. That's a whole other right. conversation. <laughs> And it's interesting because the parent groups that I run, my second week is systems and structures. And I hate it that it's the second week, but I like people but want that's them what they want. Yeah. So I'm like, here's leadership. Like we start with leadership, which is exactly where you are. And right. then I'm like, we're going to get the systems and structure stuff out of the way. And we're just going to keep revisiting it for the rest of the time that we're meeting together. 
we have we have danced with that so many times over the years and i keep like it's like i hold fast like i know you want them now it's not going to do you any good now and so we try to but i totally respect the decision because that's what they want and i was laughing about it the other day my first book is called parenting adhd now and it's a book of strategies Mm-hmm. And I've kind of always poo-pooed it because it's doing exactly what I tell people not to do, which is it starts with the strategies. But, you know, somebody asked us to write the book and we wrote the book. And I had a client say to me the other day, you know, that book changed my life. I'm like, no, you know, whatever. And she said, no, no, Elaine, sometimes we need the strategy. Mm-hmm. And it really reframed things for me. It's like, okay, I get it. And so I'm really glad that that book is there. And I really want people to read this one first because I think this sets the stage. But if you need to start with the strategies and get a little kick and then come to it, I totally get it. However you do it is best for you. But I think when you get your head around it, then everything else flows and makes more sense. I completely agree. Yeah. When I present, it's like, here's all the concepts for an hour and a half and here's 20 minutes of strategies. Yeah. And I I always say to people, the reason why is I can give you a strategy and then you know to use that strategy. But if I give you all the fundamental knowledge and understanding that got me to that strategy, then when you encounter the challenge that you're encountering, you'll know if that strategy is going to work or not. And you'll be able to come up with your own strategies that might work better than the one I gave you. Yeah, especially true in a school environment, because what happens is you've got all these teachers trying to apply IEPs and 504s, but they don't understand why. And I've been that teacher. I can't imagine how frustrating it must be from a teacher's perspective, and it's unfair. We're just not setting them up for success if we don't give them the context. It's demotivating because you've got all these little things you have to pay attention to and do, and you don't understand why. At least if you're an early teacher, just beginning, right? You're like, why? Why Why do I have to do that? There's a hundred of them. And you don't see that like, there isn't a hundred of them. You have 20 kids and they have different stuff, but like, they all have the same three things. And if you just do those three things, You've got most of their stuff covered and it's easier, but it takes a lot of figuring to get there. And related to that, being the teacher in the classroom and looking at the IEP, sometimes the IEP can be a little insulting or it can feel a little bit insulting because it's like, I already do this. Like, why are you, why are you telling me to like, make sure the kid isn't distracted? Like, of course I'm going to do that for the kid with ADHD. What are you talking about? And you get defensive and you take it personally. How do we avoid that as parents, as teachers? How do we do that? How do we avoid defensiveness? Yeah, what do we do with defensiveness or taking things personally? How might we navigate that? That is, it's a million dollar question. I, I think I probably do more work around that. I was talking to a client about it today than anything. I think a lot of it has to do with the language that we use and being really mindful of language, the ways in which we as parents dismiss teachers, the way in which we dismiss kids or teachers dismiss us as parents. Like there's this, there's a lot of things that we say that we don't realize people are feeling dismissed by it. There's certain language that just tends to put people on a defensive. If you start a sentence with the word you, chances are you're going to put someone on the defensive, right? If you, if you challenge someone, um, are you sure? You know, chances are they're going to get defensive. So, so a lot of it is about shifting our language to be a little bit more open and receptive and to, to see the agency of the person we're talking to. And this does not matter if we're talking to a kid or another adult, but to respect their independence, their agency, their, who they are as, as humans 
And if we can acknowledge them for who they are before we start asking for what we want or suggesting something or directing something, just meeting people for who they are and acknowledging that they have a legitimate perspective, whatever that is, can do so much to diffuse the kinds of defensiveness that you're talking about. Because people like to want to feel seen and heard and recognized. Everybody does. That's human. And at the risk of making you feel like you're being dismissed, just being mindful of time. Yes. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? First, I, I just I think this has been a great conversation, and it's it's a it's a gift and a treat for me to be able to to really dance with a colleague and and who understands my frame of reference and where I'm coming from, and so I really appreciate it. I think what I want parents to understand more than anything else is is that you've got this, right? At the, at the deepest core level, you understand your kid better than anybody. And no, you don't want to grow up to a point, you don't want to hit 18 where you're the expert on your child. The goal is to hit 18 where they're the expert on themselves and you're the supporting cast, as Brendan was saying earlier. In the process getting there, nobody knows this kid better than you do. Than you do. And if you can listen to yourself, and trust your, your instincts and check in and find some trusted advisors to check in with when you, when you need some guidance. Ask for the help you need. Get coaching. Get training. There's no shame in it. In fact, it's the greatest gift you can give to your kids is if you can take some space out to pay attention to yourself and how you're being in this relationship so that you can bring your best self to them and to the dynamic and be who you really want to be as a parent, not in that reactive mode that so many of us fall into, but to really consciously, thoughtfully, intentionally be the, the adult you want to be in this relationship. You know, Brendan, you were talking about leadership a minute ago. Um, this really is what parenting is about, is about being the leaders in our own lives so that we can lead our kids to become the leaders in theirs. And you know, the book that, I, that I'm offering you, The Essential Guide to Raising Complex Kids, is a roadmap to do that. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.